0: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Rishi Sunak's judgment has been called into question again after Gavin Williams had left the cabinet for the third time.
2: I did not know about any of the specific concerns.
1: But that kind of political soap opera looks even more irrelevant this week. Global leaders have gathered in Sharm El Sheikh to once again talk about the climate emergency. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. And activists in the UK are increasing their demands for climate action.
3: My name is Louise. I'm 24 years old. And
0: I'm here. I'm here because I don't have a future.
1: How seriously is Number 10 taking the most pressing issue ever to face humanity? Not enough. Rishi Sunak flip-flopped over whether he'd even attend the summit. What message does that send? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today to discuss all of this are Labour's Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Net Zero, Ed Miliband and The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff. Hello to you both.
3: Hello. Hello, John.
1: Hello, John. Hello, Gabby. Hello. Um, Our focus is going to be on the climate crisis today, but we can't ignore the mess that is the resignation of Gavin Williamson, Sir Gavin Williamson. Familiar to us all, perhaps, as a former Chief Whip, then Defence Secretary until he was sacked by Theresa May for leaking, then the Education Secretary, who became notorious for cocking up A-level results and was replaced again, and he's resigned this time as Cabinet Secretary to Rishi Sunak after allegations of bullying. The Guardian's Pippa Kriera reported on Monday that a civil servant said that Williamson had told them to slit your throat. Charmingly, Gabby. I noticed on Twitter, I think, yesterday you said or implied that the reason he'd had to sack Gavin Williamson was the the same reason that Gavin Williamson was in the cabinet in the first place. In other words, he well knew that he was a supposed master of the dark arts and a nasty piece of work. And that's what he was doing in the cabinet to start with.
3: I don't think it's a massive surprise to anyone that that Gavin Williamson has been um, sacked over bullying allegations. Or it's not that you think, my God, I would never have thought it of someone like Gavin Williamson, you know, it is something he was known for, it's the point of having him in your government, in a sort of minister without portfolio role, is to have him there as an enforcer. So it's embarrassing to have lost a cabinet minister after only two weeks in office, even at the rate things are, you know, going lately, that is life coming at you quite fast. But it does trigger some questions about Rishi Sunak's judgment, because this is an entirely foreseeable problem.
1: Do you know what um, Gavin Williamson is like, Ed?
2: As a... I don't operator. really. I don't, I, I'm going to disappoint you. I don't really <laughs> know him. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you tales of intrigue and sort of, you know, uh, but it sounds pretty terrible. It sounds pretty terrible. And do you
1: think it says something powerful, potentially powerful anyway, about how parliament and the whipping system and all that works and things that need to be talked about? I'm sure
2: it does. I, I think I think there is something quite interesting, which is that I suspect 20 or 30 years ago it would have been more likely people got away with this. you know. Gradually, Parliament is coming into the 21st century, I think, on some of this stuff. I mean, very gradually. But and I think it's really good that it's kind of like sends a message that this kind of behaviour isn't some, oh, you know, rough and tumble or whatever. It's completely
1: unacceptable. Um, let's move on to the main thing we're going to talk about today, the climate emergency. Right now in Egypt, leaders from across the world are meeting to discuss the climate crisis at COP27. And you won't need me to tell you that the outlook looks pretty bleak. Um, It seems that at the moment we face a terrifying situation that is clearly getting worse and worse. uh, And Britain's ruling politicians can't seem to decide if they're in the process or really whether they're sort of on the edge of it or outside it completely. And then I watch um, something which I think has sort of defined a large part of the political zeitgeist this week. It's not the first week it's happened. People from Just Stop Oil taking very, very direct action. And my instinctive reaction to what they're doing is that I'm in favour of it. To their credit, Just Stop Oil are becoming a central part of the discourse around the climate crisis. So I wanted to speak to someone from Just Stop Oil today. Emma Brown is part of the Just Stop Oil campaign. This week, as anyone listening to this will know, Just Stop Oil have ratcheted up the pressure by bringing the M25 to a halt. Emma, hello. Thank you for being here.
4: Oh, hi, John. Thank you for having me on today.
1: What's the intended message behind stopping the M25?
4: We asked the government to sit down with us and agree to our demand. And unfortunately, they didn't do that. We gave them time to reply. They just ignore us as they ignore all of the pressing issues that we have facing Britain today and ordinary people. All we're asking for is that the UK government stop licensing new fossil fuel projects. It's ridiculous. It's 2022 and they have a plan to open over 100 new oil and gas facilities by 2025 this is just a death sentence because not only is it completely trashing any kind of net zero strategy, it's also given a terrible message to the rest of the world that we can just continue these extraction that is going to literally kill everything that we love and cause death and suffering on an unimaginable scale. And I do not want to witness that. I'm 30 years old. I don't want to witness that. And that is why we're doing everything in our power to say that, no, we are not going to consent to this
1: in terms of making the change happen which in the instance you're talking about is that the demand that these these licenses for gas and oil exploration exploration aren't granted what's your sort of understanding of how the mechanism works so how do we get to from just stop oil disrupting everyday life to things changing do you have an do you have a vision of how that works what's the sort of transmission between the protest action and then things changing
4: so I think it's, it's raising the awareness of the issue. And even if people don't like what we're doing, more and more people are saying that they support the demand. And it's putting the government in a very difficult position where they are jailing young people rather than take the action required on the climate. And we just need to reach some kind of social tipping point where we understand that this is unacceptable and all our lives are in danger from this negligence.
1: What's your view of mainstream politics? I ask you that because COP27 is going on as we speak politicians talk about climate change one of the loudest voices about climate change in politics is on this podcast today do you think mainstream politics makes a difference are you interested in mainstream politics
4: I think that um, it's failed us because we have these election cycles that are short term um, because the because lies spread faster than the truth it has failed us what I find incredible is that we have the solutions We have amazing people in engineering, in so many different fields, but unfortunately we've concentrated power and who gets to spend the money and decide the policies um, in a a few people's hands. And I know that there are good politicians, but unfortunately it's just not working. And I think COP is an interesting example. Of course, it's so important that countries are working together, but Rishi Sunak doesn't need to go to COP to commit to no new fossil fuel licenses. He can just do that right now. It's a matter of domestic policy.
1: Ed. I don't know whether you want to ask Emma a question, or 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 respond to some of what she said.
2: I mean, look, I can hear the passion in Emma's voice, and I am committed to no new fossil fuel licenses. I can hear what your motivation is, Emma. I, I've just got to say, though, I really, really worry that you are alienating people, not not persuading them. I, I just got to say that to you. I mean, when I you know, and I was careful to read about the experiences of people. For example, on the M25, trying to get to their ninety-three-year-old dying relative, or you know, a, f- a funeral, and they can't get there. I don't think that's persuading people. I mean, look, I, I understand where you're coming from, but you know, the, the, and I understand the desperation. But I think, I think you've got to think: are we are we getting more people to our cause as a result of this? You know, and, and the problem is, you see, there are people on the right of politics who want to make this a sort of culture war and who want to say, oh, well, this is just simply about people saying you can't drive anymore or whatever. And obviously it's not, you know, tackling the climate crisis isn't about that.
4: But I just say to Ed, what, what do you expect us to do with citizens then? like, I appreciate the I heard that the net the net zero strategy for, for energy. And it is basically our demand. It's no new fossil fuel licenses and a, a decarbonized energy system by 2030, which is exactly what we're demanding. But how are we supposed to wait for the next two years? We don't have time to wait. What are we supposed to do? Because the, the traditional methods haven't worked.
1: Okay, and what okay, is, on on Ed, what she, what's ever supposed not, to
2: do? I'm, I'm not just saying just elect a Labour government. I mean, I do want to elect a Labour government, obviously, and I think that's vital. But... Think about the pupil climate strikers. They drew attention to the issue. They were taking time off school. Some people didn't like that. It raised the issue. It was a big deal, but it it didn't have the kind of negative effect. You know, profile on its own. Yes, there's reporting of just stop oil, but profile on its own doesn't doesn't kind of get you there. You've got to think well. Profile and what? What kind of profile? At the moment, the profile today is the fact that a motorcyclist, a police motorcyclist, has apparently been injured. Uh, you know, there's questions about ambulances and fire engines. You say you don't stop ambulances and fire engines. I understand that, but inevitably, if there are roadblocks, it is going to potentially delay ambulances and fire engines. So, my appeal to you is, you know, think about not just profile but impact.
4: But listen, listen, Ed, Extinction Rebellion prompted a net zero strategy and the UK government to declare a climate emergency and therefore governments all around the world to do so. It works at the time. It's unpopular, but then it works. I think that the Labour Party need to decide which side they're on. Are you on the side of the nurses? Are you on the side of the railway workers and the striking workers? Because they're causing disruption. They're causing short-term disruption to people for long-term gain. Of course. That is the same as what we are doing. And I would say you need to decide which side that you're on because we cannot just sit and be bystanders on this issue because it's going to kill a lot of people. And I would also ask Ed if he's ever tried vegan bacon.
1: Okay. (laughs) I'm
2: I'm actually got an idea which is John John Gummer famously fed his daughter a beef burger, and I famously ate a bacon sandwich. So we've decided that we're going to go on an advertising campaign for vegan bacon and uh, meat or meat alternatives.
1: Okay, and I promise you, Emma, we will have you back on, and we will have this conversation more because we've just tapped into a profound, very interesting, and very urgent tension that runs through politics and the climate emergency in particular thank you so much for being here Emmett. it's really really appreciated I appreciate thank
4: it, you. it too thank you all the
1: best thank you uh that was quite lively and a bit fraught by the standards of this podcast ed thank you for having the openness engagement is important it is um Talking of another kind of engagement, I walked into W. H. Smith's on Monday morning, I think, and suddenly Ed Miliband was back on the cover of the Daily Mail, where well, you haven't yeah. been. you haven't been for many. Must years. be doing something. Must be doing something right. Red Ed, UK must pay climate change damages. The The Daily Mail threw something of a wobbler about the idea. Of loss and damage—that's the name for it in the COP yeah. vernacular. Can you just tell us about what loss and damage means, and your understanding of why the Daily Mail is so wound up about it?
2: It turned out to be Rishi Sunak's policy too, so it's <laughs> sort of—it's—it's slight, it's slightly sort of—it made them look slightly ridiculous. This is the big focus of the of COP twenty-seven in Egypt, and that is the question of how the world supports countries that are on the front line of the climate impacts, and these are the poorest countries in the world. So Africa, for example, I think it's responsible for something like 3% of global emissions, but it's the worst hit continent when it comes to climate impacts. The most vulnerable 20 countries, the so-called V20, over the last two decades, they've lost 20% of their GDP as a result of climate impacts. We're talking about absolutely massive effects. The question is, how does the world Support those countries. And that has been a long-standing demand to at least debate this uh, at the COP. And it's, it, it sort of was part of the Paris Agreement, but it's never really been up, up front and centre. And it is front and centre of this year's COP. It's now been put on the agenda.
1: Gabby, it's interesting, isn't it, that this issue of loss and damage boiled down into the term reparations very often tweaks so many raw nerves on the political right, doesn't it? You're sort of you're into the foreign aid, the so-called foreign aid question well, it's, here it's as well as questions I about think. climate. I mean, it's,
3: one is an argument that you often hear with foreign aid on the right, which is, you know, oh, charity begins at home. You know, when money's scarce, should we be sending it abroad or whatever? You know, that's that's a sort of very old and familiar argument in terms of say But I think there's also something and it is there in the word reparations, which I know a lot of people don't like used about this subject further the term loss and damage because it infers. As with reparations for slavery, it's asking us to consider in the West that we have done something bad, you know, for which we then have a moral responsibility to try and try and make up. And that, I think, is what the right finds really hard to swallow. You get this argument now that's kind of, oh, so, oh, so we're supposed to apologise for the Industrial Revolution now, are we? Uh, no, that's not what anyone's asking for. We're talking about, one, just a very practical problem, which is countries that cannot afford to deal with the impacts of climate change are right on the sharp end of it. And secondly, yeah, there is an issue, actually, about, you know, particularly in the last 20, 30 years, once we did know the connection between what we were doing and what was happening to the climate. Yeah, I, to be honest, I do think there's a moral responsibility there.
1: Ed, I don't, I don't know whether we can talk about the loss and damage and so-called reparation issue sort of briskly, but, but one sort of point we probably can deal with relatively briefly is it's not like this is about Jeremy Hunt standing there on November the 17th and saying, I am now sending £20 billion of taxpayers' money exactly. to the developing world, right? This is a much more subtle and nuanced set of conversations about finance arrangements involving private banking and all of that, right?
2: Yeah, exactly right. And actually, uh, Mia Motley from Barbados, Prime Minister of Barbados, she has been leading the charge to say we've got to reform um, the so-called the the international institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. Because what these you know what these countries face, John, is they face this combination of massive climate impacts and massive debt burdens together. I mean, and they've also faced COVID, and that is just you know, unsupportable. Um, And what she's been saying is, look, we've got to reform the way these international institutions work, because there is money available in these international institutions. You know, you've got to find a way of mobilising their finance to help these countries through. And it's partly about debt forgiveness, partly about um, other other sources of finance from these institutions. In a sense, I think lots of the people in vulnerable countries say, You don't need to get into the issue of reparations. Just think about what's happening now. Who's caught? You know, where are the emissions coming from? And who is being
1: most affected by climate? Okay, let's pause here for a minute. After the break, we'll look at why the political right love to make the climate crisis a culture war issue.
4: shantae joseph i'm a writer and broadcaster and i spend way too much time online but now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because i'm hosting the guardians new pop culture podcast in each episode i'm gonna get under the skin of the week's biggest stories if you love pop culture i want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives then you should join me every thursday listen wherever you get your podcasts out now bye
0: or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Let's talk about the politics of the climate emergency, particularly in a British context. Now, we all know across Europe, if not the world, for some reason... A lot of modern right wing politicians, particularly those concentrated on the sort of populist right, have turned the cold, hard facts of climate change or rather the rejection of them into a deeply ideological issue. And we see that in Britain um, in the sense that while uh, Rishi Sunak and his ministers aren't denying the climate emergency, um, our prime minister certainly flip flopped over, over whether even or not to go to the COP27 summit. And, and in his sort of writhing around on that issue, that sent a very powerful message about the extent to which the climate emergency is or isn't a priority. And if you look at manoeuvrings within government since Rishi Sunak took over, Alok Sharma, who was the president of COP26, has been thrown out of the cabinet, along with the climate minister, Graham Stewart. Cabinet committees are worth looking at where policy arguments are thrashed out under Boris Johnson. There were two cabinet committees dedicated to climate. But now net zero has been rolled into a committee on domestic and economic affairs. So things are going on here. Gabby, there has been a shift, has there not?
3: There's, there's an awful lot to unpack there. So just to go back to the beginning, I think I'd separate two things out. One is a go very on. ideological argument, which is not a Sunak argument or not that part of government's argument at all, but a very ideological argument that you hear from sort of ERG, right-wing types, which is generally almost like climate's become for them. You know, once Brexit was done, climate became their next big recruiting sergeant and their ejection to net zero is very much don't tell me what to do don't tell me i can't drive or fly or eat red meat or whatever that is not what you're seeing from sunak the good news is he's not liz truss for whom i think you know net zero just came in under enemies of growth and things that she didn't like and things that she thought restricted you know personal liberties and she was actively hostile to i think what sunak is is focused on the thing that he regards as his political priority and that is Tory voters political priority if you look at the polls which is cost of living crisis probably followed by immigration after that and climate change becomes like a fourth or fifth sort of order thing after that and so for government it's not something that's constantly at the top of their minds the machinations within government Alex Sharma's not in cabinet yeah okay but you know that's not hugely surprising as we're handy he was there because he was he was um, president of COP26, and we're handing over the presidency now. So I'm not surprised that he's not there. I would, you know, it's it's probably better to have Grant Shapps in cabinet as energy secretary than it was to have Jacob Rees-Mogg. Some of those personal developments are not, you know, are not sort of a big deal.
1: Those two points aren't quite as distinct as you perhaps implied, in the sense that as a matter of party management, though, if you've got a large chunk of the of the of the parliamentary Conservative Party which is deeply sceptical about the idea of climate action, that that inevitably will exert a pull on Rishi Sunak. It does exert a pull, but
3: I would say it probably exerts less of a pull than the fact that he is constantly obsessed with and drawn to other economic issues and you're always going to come up against this. You know, climate is seen as not our immediate urgent priority. And that is, you know, that is a choice. That is an ideological choice.
1: Ed, do you give Boris Johnson, or did you did you give Boris Johnson more credit when he made a fuss about about COP twenty six in Glasgow, and do you think that things have have moved in a negative direction since he was around? I mean, that isn't necessarily saying he was Mister Climate, but nonetheless, there's been a change. I think this is
2: sort of mega interesting, actually, because um, I think Johnson turns out to be more of a convert than I would have given him credit for. But he's obviously decided that in his post-premiership world, this is something he's going to keep going on about, anti-fracking and all that. But you know what I think is the most interesting thing of all about this whole episode is that Rishi Sunak went to COP. All of his instincts are he didn't want to go. He doesn't give a stuff about this issue, right? I've talked to people who knew him when he was in the Treasury. He doesn't care about this, right? He's not a denier but he's not remotely interested but he felt he had to go because there was such an out there was such a sense of it was an old fashioned position not to go to cop to say i'm not interested in all this nonsense i've got this phrase which is it's, it's actually not originally my phrase it's a, i think I was of Costa Rican president it's cheaper now to save the world save the planet than to destroy it because the price of renewables is like 9 times less than the price of fossil fuels in britain and for 90% of the world, new renewables are cheaper than new fossil fuels. And so the whole, let's do this just because it's ethical, ethically right, but it's more expensive thing, has flipped.
1: The upshot of that as well is that even if you're a devout fan of the supposed free market, that shouldn't represent any barrier to being an enthusiastic advocate of climate action. Now that's That's the other thing that arises from what you just said. I mean, I don't think the free market on its own can really get to where we need to get to,
2: but... Yes, in the sense of there are massive business opportunities here. There are massive big private sector opportunities here, definitely. Okay. Gabby, have you ever been to a COP summit?
3: I was trying to think about that. No, I don't think I
1: have. Honestly, they're great fun, I can tell <laughs> this you. This is what I was go- Now, this is what I was going to ask you, um Ed. You are going to COP27 next week, yeah. aren't you? They
2: bring, bring back memories like a lot of my career in politics.
1: I actually I actually went to what's called the pre-COP with Ed in Copenhagen oh in advance gosh, of that th- all those years ago. That's really Yeah, fantastic. that is true, which is a sort of all like an early sort of dress rehearsal for the for the actual main event. Yeah. Anyway, what will you be doing at COP27? What's it all about what happens? Look, my purpose for
2: going there is to build alliances with like-minded countries, businesses and civil society, because we obviously want to be in government and to influence this debate in the right way. So take for an example. We have this commitment, which we talked about earlier on with Emma, which is that in tw- by 2030, all of our power will come from... Uh, renewable and nuclear. So, so zero carbon sources. That's the Labour government commitment. We're the first major country in the world to do it. But there are other smaller countries that have committed to this. We're going to be, we're trying to build alliances with those like-minded countries to kind of push things forward. So, I mean, to be a bit glass half empty about this, and to state the bleeding obvious, we're clearly not where we need to be. You know, there is a trail of broken promises from Glasgow. We're heading for 2.8 degrees of global warming. We're not, we're not on track. We're not doing nothing. You know, countries have committed to net zero by 2050, lots of countries, but we're not where we need to be.
1: Because in that context, of all the cops I can recall, this is the one that people have said was just a talking shop, it's completely pointless, Greta Thunberg's not going, that's been held up as a great sort of symbolic indication of the fact that not a lot is happening here. You would argue, presumably, this is still a very, very important event, wouldn't you?
2: I think it's an important event because... Given that this is the biggest issue the world faces, and given that you've got to solve it across 190 countries, the idea that you're and and we've got sort of you know seven years to halve global emissions and we're way off track, given those circumstances, to say, oh, well, we're just sort of not bothering this year, we'll let it go by. I mean, give me another, you know, give me another route to trying to do something about it. You know, my can- Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping is still the same person as was there when I was the climate change secretary. I will hopefully I saw him at Glasgow, I will see him now. You know, the chances sort of influence, even at the margins, to have a dialogue with the Chinese counterpart is just really, really important because because you know, this is the this is the only global
1: mechanism we've really got on this issue, imperfect as it is. Um, Right, let's go back to the politics of all this internationally and domestically. Um, This has been sort of referenced a few times in the conversation so far. The political right, it seems to me, prospers now when it does prosper by telling people that the left is sort of bossy and judgmental and interfering. I mean, that's the essential premise of the so-called culture wars. And I suppose the ultimate example of that view of the left in, in the eyes of politicians on the right very often is climate and climate action. In the views of politicians on the right, the the same people who tell people to use, to use the correct pronouns and are the same people who are telling people not to eat bacon sandwiches or drive their cars. You know, the political right now trades. I mean lots of people have told me
2: not to eat bacon sandwiches. We know say, about the history. Anyway.
1: That might be in the Daily Mail as well. Um, you know, the political right trades really on not being the left. Vote for me because I'm not them. And that really sits under um this recurrent sense of hysteria and hostility that you see in right-wing opinion to doing anything about the climate emergency that brings us on then to another question gabby how much do you think is the rights posturing on climate and delay and denial bluntly put reflective of public opinion or at least some of it i mean it is out there it's not like millions of people don't broadly have those sorts of attitudes they do
3: it is out there but i think it's changing you know you now get solid majorities kind of in the region of 50 55% saying government is not doing enough about climate change people are pretty you know sold on that now and you know the more they see the examples of it in everyday life i think the more that becomes true it's just what what when you ask what is the more that government should be doing, that's when, because that's when people want it to be, ideally something that's not disruptive of their lives or expensive or that they don't have to pay for. You know, and that, that's where the sort of tricky bit comes in. Almost the biggest enemy now, in a way, is a sense of kind of apocalypse overload. You, the danger is, I think, that people just almost switch off. There's only so much you can worry about at any given time.
1: So what do you do then? That's a really interesting question about the political story that you have to tell, therefore. Because the reality of the issue is doom and nightmarish events, isn't it? It's, it's it's mountains on fire and the prospect of awful floods in this country come February, let alone what's just happened in Pakistan. So how how do you get round that and say, look, in all this carnage that you're seeing everywhere, there are opportunities. Ed looks very animated. Come on, Ed. What's the because answer?
2: because we're in the better lives business. You see, look, I, I always used to say, you know, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. I mean, yes, we've got to talk about the... Um, the dangers and truth-telling and all of that. But you see, this is why the shift, the economic shift is so important. Because actually, when I say 2030 clean power, it's lower bills, more security, not reliant on Putin. It's massive numbers of jobs. Now, we've also got this GB Energy Plan, this publicly owned energy generation company, to make sure we get the jobs in the UK. But this is opportunity. You see, And that isn't to say it's all easy, because it isn't all easy. And Gabby's rightly said that. But I think people are basically with us, and that's all the polling says. Climate now one of the top three issues. But but the question people are asking is, okay, but is it going to cost me? Is it just going to be a sort of rich person's privilege, or is it going to be is it going to be economically in my interest? And I think we can emphatically say yes, if government does the right thing.
3: The one thing we don't praise Boris Johnson very often on this podcast, God knows, Um, but the one thing that he got right, I think probably, and you saw it this, this week in Sheikh, is that he's very good at talking up what Britain, you know, making it sound like something we should be proud of, all that kind of nonsense about, you know, we're going to be the Saudi Arabia of wind or whatever, it was It whiffle, but at the same time, it's very important to conservative voters that they can feel this is a source of national pride, you know, that going green is something Britain would be good at and could be a world leader in and could be something we're proud of rather than something that you just feel... Uh, We've never done enough, and whatever we've done is never enough. And it's always, you know, we've always kind of somehow failed. And it's that getting that balance between hope and positivity and something that sounds like it would be almost exciting to do.
2: I've got a quiz, I've got a Guardian podcast quiz question to ask both of you, which is what has been the reduction? This is a global average figure, I think, in the cost of solar energy over the last
1: decade alone, I would imagine.
3: Oh, I don't know, but you're going to tell us.
1: Go on, have a uh, guess. Uh, what, as have a, a percentage? As a percentage? Uh, 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 well, probably 70 or 80% at least. Gabby?
3: Oh, I don't know. It's come down by more than
2: 100%. 89%. See, so, yeah, that was quite a good guess. See, 89%. You see... It's it's like a tenth of what it was. And I mean, you know what is really interesting about this? And I don't want to sound just like a techno-optimist, although I do actually rather agree with Gabby about some of what Johnson used to say about this or says about this, is if this cost reduction carries on and if the take-up of renewables carries on going massively up, this will happen. The cost advantages of of, um, going green are going to get bigger and bigger. You see, this is the big actually reason for hope is that I'm really going to use a very technique, a very Ed Milibanteau, non-linearity. In other words, <laughs> you think about- Go on, sell it, just What do we want Click non-linearity? <laughs> when do we want it in the medium term? You know, the, <laughs> if you think about this, that we think about it's just a straight line in terms of take up of these things. But actually, it won't be a straight line. It's like a sort of ski slope situation where you really go down very sharply in terms of emissions because suddenly countries all around the world are taking up these renewables. So I
1: think there are real reasons for hope here. This is good. I thought this, was, this might be a hair shirt, listen to this and feel profoundly bummed out sort of podcast, and It hasn't ended up like that, for which I'm profoundly grateful. I've just got one last question, which is that, um, it seems to me that we've yet to see a, a leading politician in a leadership position in the centre-left party really say the basis of everything I'm going to do is the climate emergency, which is where this issue belongs. And then you would get elections largely defined by, by this huge existential threat to the world. We're not there yet. And contra, I wonder I would say. And I wonder, is the next election here going to feel like the first climate election? The second question is, do you foresee a time in the future where you and people like Emma will get on better and perhaps that that sort of deep fracture within uh, the climate movement broadly speaking is sort of healed and that they feel better about mainstream politics and you feel better about them. Gabby first of all do you think do you think do you foresee this issue being much more foregrounded at the next UK election? Because it, has, it hasn't been so far this much me, more
3: foregrounded. Yes, I don't think it's ever going to be the single, you know, we everything starts from this the biggest world or you know order of whatever type thing. But if you look at you know the Australian elections, you know, climate was a huge issue in that. You know, climate's become much more of an issue in U.S. elections recently. It is going up and up and up the agenda. And will Ed and uh, Louise ever go? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's up to them. But I think they both have the same aim in mind they just have very different strategies for getting there and that's you know that's what politicians and activists do they do have different strategies for yeah but as so Belinda
1: Carlisle used to sing it we dream the same dreams we want the same thing
3: <laughs> she could be chanting non-linearity from the ganchis of exactly,
2: 25 exactly. before that was the, the title of the LP out. take it nonlinearity is the title of the LP. Um look on, on the question of movements they're always gonna have different perspectives uh, I I do, I'm just in all seriousness I do worry about, if, if you think about what, uh, what political opponents want to see, what people who are against this want to see, they would quite like just Stop Oil doing what they're doing, I, I, I think.
1: Well, stuff smashed jet smash windows all the way down Regent Street, you know, the ANC blew stuff up. It's not, it's not like this is a new thing on the progressive side of politics, disruption and damage. Anyway, on the, on the UK election question. On the UK election question, I think if you think about Keir
2: Starman's speech at the Labour Party Conference, this was absolutely front and centre. And you know, I know from my discussions with him over many months on this that he really sees it as a big economic, a, a, a central part of his mission, um, because it's the right thing to do. It's the future of the economy. So you know, this will absolutely be in the foreground of our manifesto offer. And, and I don't say that because I you know care about it. I say that because it, I think it's it's a real passion of his to to what he wants to achieve as Prime Minister.
1: Great. In unlikely circumstances, that may have been one of the most upbeat podcasts I've hosted so far. So thank you to you both, Gabby and Ed.
2: I felt I had to lean against your natural instincts, John.
1: It's good, I can be somewhat of your ish You right? can be, so, as
2: isn't? I've said to you many times.
1: Anyway, thank you to you and Gabby for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and are now walking away from listening to it with a profound spring in your step. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cucoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtaraj and Nicole Jackson.
0: This is The Guardian.